fascinated with stories of life change. Now, some of you, your stories, they fascinate me because you've shared with me ways that you've undergone tremendous change in your life. Some of you describe crazy <laughs> pathways that if you were to just sit down with any one of us and sketch how you got here today, it would be truly amazing. It's fascinating to hear how you took steps or things that have happened in your life. Some of it tragic, difficult. Some of it, it happened almost like you were surprised that it happened. You're like, how, how did I get here? I can't believe I'm coming to church. You know, I can't believe I'm part of this. I can't believe I know Jesus. Your stories are fascinating to me. I also love to dive into, uh, you know, biographies and stories of people. I, a couple of years ago, I read a story of a young woman who was raised in an ultra-Orthodox Jewish community in New York. And her story, her upbringing, her story of coming out of that community, not into a particular um, other faith or anything, but just her story of coming out of that was absolutely fascinating. Because it's something about people moving from a really devout position or something they've, o- they've only ever known one thing and then coming to something else is, is incredible. Um, I also enjoyed a story uh, a year or two ago of a family, a whole family uh, that was deeply, deeply Mormon. I mean, we're talking like, she was a tenured professor at Brigham Young University for 30 years. They were like heavily involved in the, 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 the real deal there in Salt Lake City. You know, her, her son would go after school and get baptisms for the dead and things. I mean, they were heavily, heavily involved. Anyway, on one of their son, sons, whose name happened to be Micah, uh, he was away on a mission in Florida with his fellow elder, and a Baptist pastor there started doing a Bible study with them. And over the course of that year, he and his friend came to know Jesus personally, the real Jesus, the biblical Jesus. The work of the Holy Spirit is strange. Back home, his girlfriend also in Salt Lake City came to know the true Jesus. Can you imagine the ripple this sent through their family? Huge shockwaves. But over the next five years, this entire family came to know the true Jesus Christ. Left Mormonism. Um, embraced the biblical Jesus and are following him and are active, of course, in, in helping, helping Mormons uh, understand who Jesus really is. I'm reading a book Mark Bone lent to me. It's fascinating. It's called A Wind in the House of Islam. You know, in the last 14 centuries, or maybe first 14 centuries of, of Islam, hardly any Muslims ever converted, at least not without a sword at their neck. You know what I'm saying? But real, true conversion, like where they chose it. Very, very, very little happened. But in this last century, things started to really happen. And then particularly in the last, like, 20 years, there's been a fire lit. Thousands, tens of thousands of Muslims are coming to know Jesus Christ. And uh, this amazing book just has a survey of the, the, na- the nine houses of Islam throughout the world and all these different areas and people groups and, and just chronicling the amazing change that's happening in Muslims as they've come to discover who Jesus is. It's truly, uh, truly amazing. People who, against all odds, move from one belief to another, whether they're moving from Jewish to agnostic, whether they're moving from Muslim to Christian, or frankly, I still find very fascinating those who maybe have moved from a Christian faith to some kind of atheism or some other kind of belief. I find their journeys intriguing, especially if you can watch them wrestle through what they're trying to figure out, what they're moving from, what they're rejecting, what they're embracing. But shifts in faith can be very disconcerting, especially for the communities that are being left behind, right? Very disturbing. 
Some of you older folks, if I can name it, might recognize these people in this picture. Well, almost anyone, if you use your imagination, can recognize the guy on the far right as Billy Graham. The guy on the left, maybe only some of our elders would know him, his name is Charles Templeton. Charles Templeton was one of the earliest associates of Billy Graham. In fact, was on the board that started Youth for Christ and hired Billy Graham. Traveled with him around Europe and North America. Huge crusades. Thousands of people coming to know Jesus, coming to follow Jesus. He went on to found a church in Toronto that's still alive and well today. But somewhere along the way, Charles Templeton began to move away from the Christian faith. And in 1957, he rejected it all, embracing atheism, until his dying day just uh, 15, 15 years ago. This was hugely disturbing. His, his, his leaving was a real blow to many Christians. I mean, how could this happen? Imagine how disturbing it was for those who came to faith in Jesus through his ministry. Very disturbing. A big question that a lot of people are asking nowadays, churches, families, ministries, uh, you know, it has to do with how is it that all these young people who are raised in the church grow up and just leave it? Leave church. And by, for the most part, if they leave church, they leave the faith. Why is that happening? How can we stop it? What's going on? The question is very challenging. Why do people who have faithfully followed Jesus sometimes turn away? Why does that happen? It's a question that I spent some time thinking about this week. I was remembering conversations I've had with people, recalling stories I've heard from others. I was thinking about people that I've known and I've loved, people that I've, I've, I've led to Christ and I've baptized, people that I've walked with even for years who for one reason or another have come to a place where they decided they didn't want to follow Jesus anymore and they've turned and they've walked away. And I started thinking about like what was going on and how did that happen And believe it or not, a list started to emerge. Now, just to prove that I am a real preacher, the list, it's unbelievable. It all starts with the letter D. And and I know that's shocking and somewhat cliche, and some of you hate that. but, But here's actually, into my defense, as we get into this list, in my defense, a whole bunch of them actually start with D, and they're even in the book of Hebrews, you might notice them. But... I started to think about that, and I wanted to share this list with you because I think as we wrestle through this list, you're going to identify things that you've experienced or that you've had others in your life experience, like things that might explain why people turn away. So let me give the top ten reasons. I'm going to rattle through them, but I want you to think as we go through this list, like, have I ever seen this? Or have I wrestled with this myself? Like, is this maybe help explain some of my own struggles or the struggles of people maybe in my family or in my life. So let's just run through them real quickly together. Top 10 reasons that people uh, turn away. The first one is disgust in other Christians. Because let's be honest, a lot of times when I've talked to people who have turned away, if you trace it back, you realize that they came to faith or maybe they were following Jesus and they had a very significant experience where someone who was also a follower of Jesus or at least claimed to be a follower of Jesus really, really hurt them, betrayed them. Uh, maybe it was in a church situation. There was a deep split or maybe it was a, a unfaithfulness. There's something that happened where the hypocrisy or the hurt just overwhelmed them and they were so disgusted it led to a distancing and eventually perhaps they turned away. That can happen. Uh, we know that. We've talked to people who, as a result of what has happened with others, has led, for the, led them to turn away from Jesus. Second one is disappointment with God. 
People that have prayed for something, have hoped for something, have asked for something, maybe a, a child not to die or, or something to change in their marriage. Uh, and they haven't heard what they wanted to hear. It hasn't been answered the way they thought it would answer. And it's led to some kind of disappointment with God. He wasn't there for me. He let me down. Now, sometimes that can be due to the fact that maybe people have bought into an idea of the Christian faith or of Jesus or of Christianity that, that maybe isn't entirely true. Like they, they were maybe told that if you come to faith in Jesus, your problems are over. Your money problems are solved. Everything's great. You follow Jesus as long as you're being faithful. And, and they, they, they bought into this idea. They came to follow Jesus and it wasn't working out that way. And they still had relationship problems and they, things still happened in their lives. And, and they, they began to realize, oh, this is not what I signed up for. And I'm disappointed with God. He failed me. And so they turn away. The third one I've seen is through difficulties, which is kind of related to disappointment with God, perhaps. But it's just the idea that things might be actually going worse now that I'm following Jesus. Maybe because of following Jesus, there's family pressures that I never experienced before. Maybe the people who are closest to me, people that I love, are all of a sudden really, really putting on the pressure that I tone down the Jesus thing, you know? And because of maybe overt persecution, maybe family pressure, difficulties that have come into my life, I'm just not sure I want to follow Jesus anymore. The fourth one is distractions. I've seen this quite a bit. People can be very fired up about faith, very fired up about Jesus, fired up about the church for a while. But then other things come in. Maybe it's a new hobby. Maybe it's a business venture. Maybe it's sports. uh, Maybe it's hockey. Things come in and they begin to distract. They begin to fill up the extra time we have, begin to fill up our schedule. And as a result of this distraction, it can just lead us to places where it just Jesus isn't our priority anymore. We're just not that concerned anymore. We're on to other things. The fifth thing I've noticed is discouragement. This one really hits home. I've talked to a number of people who just feel like I've tried and I've tried and I've tried. Like I've tried to get over this addiction. I've tried to be a good Christian. I've tried to do all the things I supposed to do, and I'm failing at it. Therefore, I guess I just I'm not going to follow Jesus anymore. I'm just I'm just done trying. I'm not even gonna I'm not even gonna attempt that anymore. Or maybe they haven't experienced God in their life the way that they thought they should, or the way it seems like others are, and it leads to a discouragement that eventually leads them away. The sixth one I've noticed is doubt. Sometimes it's doubt where a person just is no longer sure that. Jesus is the Son of God, no longer sure that he's the only way to salvation, no longer sure about the Bible as authoritative, whatever it is, this doubt that can, can get in, and sometimes it's unacknowledged. And those of you who know me know that I don't, I believe in expressing your doubt, like call it out, say it, name it, let's try to figure it out together, let's, let's talk about it, let's be open about it. So sometimes it's that kind of honest doubt. Sometimes it's, it's doubt because maybe the person hasn't had a lot of discipleship, not a lot of growth in Christ, so they, they've They've come to faith and they've, they believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but they don't really know, like, where is that rooted in Scripture and how is that in contrast to other religions and how do I think that through when I'm challenged? And so when they come into a conversation and because they've never been discipled, their roots aren't very deep, they have no idea how to respond to this, and then they can feel doubt, doubt that can actually lead them away from faith in Jesus. So it can be honest doubt, it can be discipleship, and then sometimes, this will lead us to the next thing, it can be a smokescreen. Sometimes... It's doubt, you think, until you get in a little further. And that leads us to number seven, which I've seen, which is desires. Now, I'll be honest, this is the one that I would have just called it sin. 
but I wanted it to be a D. The rest were D's, though, I, I swear. <laughs> I cannot tell you how many times I have talked to people who suddenly are having a crisis of faith about the divinity of Christ, but you talk to them for 10 minutes and find out, really, it's because they really, they really want to sleep with her. And in order to sleep with her, I have to somehow question the divinity of Christ, because if I can nail that, well then... He has no authority in my life, and I can do whatever I want to. This happens all the time. People express what you think is an honest intellectual doubt about authority of Scripture, about the divinity of Christ. But if you dig in deep, if you, if you can get to some honesty, you find out that really, they really want to seek revenge. They really want to leave their wife because she's a bit tiring. They really want to do something that they know they can't do when they're under the authority of the unique Son of God who died for them and is leading them to greater things. They can't do it. So they come up with doubts when really it's a smokescreen for desires. And sometimes it's just desires flat out where people have rejected Jesus because they want to go their own way. The eighth thing I've seen is distance. Where people through, sometimes it's through discouragement. Sometimes it's because of distractions. Sometimes it's because of, of disgust or hurt from other Christians. But it's led to a distancing where they've isolated themselves from community. Where they no longer gather for worship because who needs that? And who needs to hang out with a bunch of hypocrites anyway? Or they, they don't no longer connect in conversation with Christian brothers and sisters around following Jesus. And there's a distancing that happens. That they find themselves all of a sudden where they, they don't really feel at home anymore in that community or they don't really feel loved and no one really knows me and it can lead them to a place of isolation which is very damaging to their faith. Now sometimes that distancing happens because of family situations. Sometimes it happens because of mental illness. Sometimes there's, there's things that go on and that distancing can happen but we know that that can be very damaging to our, to our faith. The ninth one I see is drift. We've kind of seen it hinted at in a few of the others, but this in particular is when, again, we've come to Jesus, we've, we've maybe dabbled in a few things, but we've never been intentional about our faith. That we're 20 years into this thing, and we haven't really taken Scripture seriously. We haven't really dug and got the roots down deep. And as a result, we've just kind of drifted over time. We aren't sure why we do this church thing anymore. We aren't sure why we call ourselves Christians anymore. It's kind of like getting out on Kootenai Lake on a windy day without paddles without engine, or without sail. Where will you end up? We don't know, and we never will, will we? <laughs> but without something, without paddles, without a sail, or well, without please, a motor, we won't get to where we want to go. We just drift, and drifting never takes us to a place we want to go. It's a cause for some people of why they've turned away from Jesus. And the tenth one is quite simply deceit. The reality is there are lies out there. Lies about Jesus. Lies about the scripture. Lies about who you are, who we are. Lies about who God is and his goodness. And at different times in our life, due to things that have happened, whatever, we can believe those lies and be deceived. Maybe we're at a particularly uh, sensitive spot and we run into a friend who just kind of dismisses our faith in Jesus. Maybe we watch a link and, and, and watch some YouTube thing that seems so convincing and just seems to take the scripture to pieces. Or, or maybe the reality is we just aren't too sure of things anymore and we have an enemy. There is an enemy we have, the enemy of our souls who longs to deceive us and destroy us. And so we end up believing something that isn't true 
But because of that deceit that's been sown in our lives, it leads us to a place we never intended to go. Well, those are, those are ten things that I've seen, or variations of them, sometimes different things at play in people's lives. But I'd really be interested to know what, what you've seen, whether you've seen these at play or you'd like to expand on any of them, or whether you'd add to this list, and it does not have to start with a D. But there's extra points if it does. Okay, all right. So um, what would you say? Is there, what have you noticed in your own life struggles you've experienced or in others' lives as they have turned away or are turning away from, from faith in Christ? What have you noticed? Say it again, David. Direction. Can you expand on that a little bit? So lack of purpose, lack of direction. And, you know, some people, they've, they've come to faith in Jesus, and unfortunately, maybe this is lack of discipleship, they've never been told that they're not just saved from, from their sin. Or you're saved to something, saved for a purpose, saved for a mission, saved to be part of a family, right? So that purpose that you're right, I think people totally can drift because of that. Yeah. Anyone else? Sure you can. Stanley, I think you should rest as often as you can. That's right. I think, Stanley, that the principle in Scripture is that we should practice rest. But when we practice it is up for whatever works for people. I think if we work and work and work and work and work. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yes, I think it's, yeah, I think it's different, Stanley. And I think in the New Testament, we're told that it doesn't matter anymore. I think the, the principle is that we need proper rest. And you know what? That's right. And even related to this, you know, Stanley, and for everyone, that if we only ever work, if we overwork, if we're overloaded, we also will experience tremendous, uh, uh, I would say, difficulty in our spiritual life. You know, one of the things, um, I worked with InterVarsity for years. You know that. Dana did too. Uh, when I worked with um, Christian Medical Dental Society, we did some partnership with them. I was told uh, by some of the folks that work with uh, Christian medical students, um, they said, you know, a lot of students will come, Christian students will come into med school vibrant in their faith, and eight, nine, ten years later, they leave med school with no faith at all. And for many of them, they said, it wasn't because they had some huge intellectual crisis. It actually was death by attrition. They just starved that thing to death. The, the pressure, the overload, the lack of rest, the, the no intentionality, no priority, that ten years down the road you find out, I just have very little faith left because I, I didn't tend to it. I never fed it. And I don't know if I'm really a follower of Jesus anymore. So we need to think about that. Anyone else? Matt, Calvin. Yeah. 
Yes. And so I made a turn away from the church, but I didn't turn away from Jesus. Right. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And But can I add to that, though? A lot of times, and we've seen this ripple through, um, a lot of parents will reject the church because of disgust or whatever. And it doesn't affect their personal relationship with Jesus. But guess what it does to their kids? Guess what it does to their grandkids? Because the studies in Canada that have been done by friends of Dana and I and others show that if, if a child leaves church, for the most part, they will also leave Jesus. And so children that are raised outside, this is not every single one, obviously, but by and large, it's true. So as parents, they might retain their personal faith, but often their kids don't. Well, we're a little far afield, but let's just draw back for a second. None of this is new. This struggle that people have had, the, the, even the turning away, none of that is, is really new. In every generation, crossing cultures, crossing time, Jesus' followers have been tempted, been challenged. There's been focus or, or, or you know, draw to move away. I mean, think about it. Jesus' own followers, one of them betrayed him, and then another one denied him, and then the rest just ran like rabbits. Right? In the early church, there's lots of struggles because... <laughs> undergoing severe persecution the first couple hundred years, um, there were some Christians who did cave under the pressure of persecution, who renounced Jesus. But when the persecution was over or maybe waned a bit, they would come back to the church and want to be accepted back in. Well, that was a big struggle, huge issue. in not, not necessarily the earliest church, but a few hundred years in. Why do you do that? How do, you, do you forgive? I mean, my daughter died because of my faith, and you renounced, and you're okay, and now you want back in you know, all the struggle. This has been a struggle that Christians have had all down through the centuries. The reality is not everyone who finds and follows Jesus keeps following him. And some of these reasons, I think, help to explain that. So how do we respond to that? Or maybe more specifically, how do we help each other? How do we help other people who might be wrestling, might be discouraged, might be disgusted, um, might be just really distracted, or we notice that there's a significant distance that's occurred. Like maybe we don't know where their hearts are, but we just know the trajectory of their lives is leading them away, away from community, away from church, away, away from Jesus. How do we respond to them? Don't you wish there was some kind of guide, some kind of letter that was written? <laughs> that was designed specifically for people who were being tempted to turn away and forget about Jesus? Of course there is. And it's in this week's reading in the Community Bible Experience. It's the letter to the Hebrews. It's a fantastic little little letter. It was written for one reason and one reason alone, to shore up shaky faith and help people to keep following Jesus. And how did it do that? It did that by recasting a vision of just how much better Jesus was than anything we've ever known. So what I want to do this morning is a little different. I usually take a passage and we look at it a little more closely. But for today, I want to do kind of like a 10,000 foot flyover on this letter to the Hebrews. A letter that at first reading, which for some of us it was, 
or second reading or tenth reading, a letter that can seem pretty foreign to us, especially if we're new to the Bible, particularly if we're unfamiliar with some of the ancient practices of the Jewish people as they worshipped Yahweh. It's filled with rabbinic-style arguments, arguments that, let's be honest, are really weird, strange. Like you look at them and you read, well, I would never use that argument. You know, I would never go there. Well, because it's a different culture, arguing in a different way. Filled with obscure references to ancient characters like Melchizedek. No one's named their kid that, right? Little Mel running around? I don't think so. Um, and, and then there's so much strange detail that we can kind of get lost in it and wonder what's going on. But the main point of Hebrews is actually pretty clear. Here it is. Jesus is better, so don't go back. Jesus is better, so don't go back. And the theme is woven all throughout the letter. From start to finish, the letter to the Hebrews exalts the supremacy of Jesus Christ. There's just nothing you can name, no one you can point at, who is greater than Jesus himself. And because Jesus is, is greater, and because this letter was written to people who are from a Jewish background, who are being tempted to kind of turn away from Jesus and go back to what they knew, practicing many of the things that they had no longer they were no longer practicing the writer goes through their faith background piece by piece showing them just how much greater Jesus is than anything they've ever known all to say that Jesus is better so don't go back i want to read for you just the first 3 verses of hebrews you can kind of see it emerge right off the bat here here it is in the past god spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And then listen to what he says about the son. Whom he appointed heir of all things. And through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory. And the exact representation of his being. Sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Jesus is awesome. This is how it launches. And then it just goes on from there. Chapter 1 and 2, Jesus is better than all the previous words that God has spoken to the prophets. Oh yeah, and, and Jesus is better than the angels too, which I know you came this morning wondering that question, right? Yeah. It just reminds us that there was obviously something else going on there because he spends a lot of time explaining how Jesus is better than the angels. Chapter 3, Jesus is better than Moses himself. Moses, he's like the biggest guy in the Old Testament. He's the guy through whom the, the law was given. He led God's people out of Egypt. This guy's amazing. And you know what the writer of the Hebrews says? Moses was the servant in the house in which Jesus is a son. Wow. Jesus is better. Uh, Chapters 4 and 5 and 6 and 7, Jesus is better than all the previous priests. He spends a lot of time on this. This is obviously a significant issue. Because though Jesus was tempted in every way, like us, making him very empathetic toward our weaknesses, and we'll come back to that, he himself didn't sin. He didn't cave. Jesus supersedes the whole class of priests. These priests, they themselves were in need of atonement. They themselves were sinners. They themselves were were not pure. They had to go through rituals to be able to even stand in the place they did. But Jesus didn't have to. He supersedes this whole class of priests as the great high priest, the one who is final, the greatest of them all. In chapter 7, we read that Jesus is better, not only because he's a better priest, 
but because he's offering a better sacrifice. And it gets a little confusing here because guess what the better sacrifice is? It's himself. So not only is he a better priest, but he's like the priest who comes in and then climbs himself up on the altar because he's the best sacrifice that can be offered. Instead of going year after year to atone for sin, that every time you mess up, some blood's got to be spilt, instead of having to go back again and again and again, being reminded that there's nothing that can wash away my sin, there's nothing that can atone for it finally and for good, Jesus himself offers the best sacrifice of all. And as a result of his sacrifice, there's no more need for any more sacrifices. Because, I quote from Hebrews 7, he was sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. He's the greatest sacrifice. The letter just goes on from there. Jesus is a better priest, offering a better sacrifice in a better sanctuary, making a better covenant. Better, 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 best. That's the message that this writer is trying to convey. And why all this about Jesus? This is the question, the powerful question he's trying to pose to this community of people. Why would you who have come to believe in the better go back to the lesser? Why would you who have come to follow and trust the greatest one that there is, why would you turn back to that? This is what the the writer is trying to call them to to see that point. Don't get lost in all the ceremonial detail, all the stuff that's going on. It's all to point out to them that Jesus is better, so don't go back. The call to not turn back is everywhere, all throughout, kind of a mashup through the mix of how much better Jesus is. And so when you read it through, it's just all over. Some of these challenges we read um, to not turn back are kind of heartwarming. We, we really enjoy them. And then others cause great debate because they're dire warnings and they're very serious and we kind of makes the hair on the back of our necks stand up when we hear it. At least 17 times we hear a call through the letter of Hebrews to not turn back, to hold firmly, to persevere, to, to not turn away. And um, let me just, um, there's only 13 chapters in the, in the regular Bible, right, uh, in Hebrews. And here at least 17 times, there's probably more. But let me just read a few of them just for a little taste for us. Hebrews 2.1 We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not... Oh, it's a D word. Drift away. Might have been where I got it. Uh, Hebrews 3.12-13 says, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sins deceitfulness. Hebrews 4.14 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. And then Hebrews 12, a little more familiar. We've maybe heard this before. Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. And just before this, like in chapter 11, the writer has chronicled all these different people who had lived life in faith. A lot of them under very difficult circumstances, but all of them receiving a promise, but never seeing the fulfillment of it before they died. But living out in light of the faith that they had, that God was good and was leading them forward, they continued to persevere. They never turned back. Since, he says, we're surrounded like a stadium with this great cloud of witnesses, these perseverers who have continued, let us, Run. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. 
For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. There's plenty more where that came from. It's all over the place, punctuated again and again and again. Jesus is better, so don't go back. Jesus is better. Don't go back. That's the message of this letter to Hebrews, to the Hebrews, trying to shore up their shaky faith by showing them that Jesus is better than anything they've ever seen. Well, how does this help us? What do we do with this? In particular, I think, how does it help us help each other? Because we can look around our lives and we can feel like, hey, I can, I can see that on the list. I can, I can see as I, I've got a friend, a spouse, a neighbor, uh, people that have been part of this church community and have drifted or are now at a distance. Or maybe yourself for just acknowledging that I've struggled with these things and I'm, I'm not sure where I'm at. What can we do? Well, I think three things kind of emerge from, from this letter to the Hebrews. The first one is critical. We are called to fix our eyes on Jesus. To fix on Jesus. And we're told that specifically at, in Hebrews 12. But all through, that's the point of the whole letter. Look at Jesus. Look at how great he is. Look at who he is and what he's done. Look at how he's lived. Look at the sacrifice he's offered. Look at everything he's done for you. And don't lose your focus. Fix your eyes, your attention on Jesus. And I think that's critical for how we help each other. That as we are struggling, as we're discouraged, as you may be even feeling betrayed or disgusted with somebody that's hurt you, as as we share with one another some of the things that are distracting us or some of the doubts that we have, that we actually help each other get our eyes fixed back on Jesus. It doesn't deny the significance of things that are happening in our lives or the struggles that we're having, but we're remembering that, you know what? In spite of all these things, we need to remember to keep our eyes focused on Jesus, who is greater, who will lead us through, who has done everything possible to bring us into right relationship with him, who's given us his Holy Spirit so that we can persevere. We need to keep our eyes fixed on him. And as that scripture says, we need to encourage one another daily. We need to help each other do that to fix our eyes on Jesus and not, and not let go. And that, that means, I think, in our conversations with each other. I think that means in times when maybe we're really distracted by something else that's going on, maybe in our own connect groups, as we gather to worship, that we remember that we need to turn our attention, our heart's attention to Jesus. And remember that we, if we, if we just not lose our, our, our focus on him, that's going to go a long ways to helping alleviate some of the struggles that we're having or keeping us focused. The second thing is to get clarity. I think this is really helpful, especially in discussion with each other. Like, a lot of times when we're struggling or we're, we're, we're not sure what's going on or maybe a friend is really struggling, that we need to help each other get down to, like, what's the actual struggle here? Like, for reals, you know? Like, what's going on? Because there's so many things, we, we, we even ourselves, we can think it's this when really it's this. And I, I think we need to encourage one another. Like, get, let's get clarity on this. Let's figure out, like, is it really intellectual doubt? Is it really something that we can research and study and read? Or is it a heart condition, a desire that, to do your own thing? Well, let's at least acknowledge it and call it for what it is. Let's get clarity on what's hanging you up. Is it that, that you've, you've now been, in the last year, been you know, so busy with stuff, so distracted by the things that are going on that there's been a distance that's created and as a result, you're feeling kind of out of place and, and you're just not sure what's going on in your faith. Is that, is that what's happened? 
I think by getting clarity, we can help each other identify what's going on and perhaps address some of the things that we might be struggling with. I think when we don't get clarity, then things go, can I say, misdiagnosed. We don't really know what's going on. We might think it's this, but it's really this. And as a result, we don't move toward greater freedom. And I think it creates more drift and more distance. Part of getting clarity is being reminded of the way things were. It's very easy for us, especially if we follow Jesus for a while, to forget what it was like before. It's very easy for us to begin to imagine that, um, oh, life was just so good back then. It's kind of the equivalent in the, in the Old Testament story that the uh, Israelites are traveling, right? And they left Egypt where they were slaves, you know, whips across the back. And then when there were struggles and, and there were, things weren't going right, remember some of the things they said about going back to Egypt? I love this one. The onions in Egypt. This was an awesome onions, I tell you. If the onions in Egypt made you forget that you were a slave making bricks, those are some sweet onions. They must have ate them like apples, you know. But it's so easy for us to forget. And part of getting clarity is being reminded, okay, which is what this letter is doing, okay, let's go over what you'd be going back to. Let's just do a little, let's just do a little walk through memory lane and talk about what things were like when you didn't have a purpose, when you didn't have hope, when you didn't know Jesus' salvation, when you didn't know forgiveness, when you didn't know grace. Let's just talk about that. Let's explore that together. Getting clarity is crucial. I think it's one of the ways we help each other. And then the third thing, I think, is to take inspiration. This is actually one of the keys for why the letter to the Hebrews was written, is to help us take inspiration for Jesus and who he is, to really see who he is and realize, wow, look at what Jesus has done. Look at how awesome he is. Look at all he gave up. I mean, just look at him and be inspired by not only who he is, but his example. And he uses that. Remember, he says, look, he knew what was coming, but for the joy set before him, he scorned the cross, despising its shame. He just went, no, it's nothing compared to where what God is doing. It's nothing compared to what God is accomplishing through this sacrifice. We're to take inspiration from that. We're supposed to run with perseverance the way that Jesus has, taking inspiration from him. But we're also supposed to take inspiration from others. This is why in the letter to Hebrews, there's this huge amount of, of, of space taken to chronicle all these different people who have lived this life of faith. Because we're, we're to take inspiration from that, to see how they have lived. And they never saw what was promised to them. Lots of them had difficulty. We're to take inspiration from that and now to imagine them as a crowd of witnesses around us, cheering us on as we face our struggles. And we aren't sure what's going on. We aren't sure what's coming down the pipe. But to stay faithful and persevere and run the race that God has given us, we take inspiration from them. I also think we take inspiration from each other. We're told to encourage one another. And I think as we get close, as we look in each other's eyes, as we pray for one another, as we challenge each other and encourage one another to fix our eyes on Jesus, we're also taking inspiration from each other. And as I learn more about your story and the the ways that you are overcoming, the way that you're fixing your eyes on Jesus, the way that you are dealing with what you're experiencing, it helps me do the same. We can take inspiration from each other. And I want to just note this Getting, you know, getting a, a clear vision of Jesus and then getting clarity on what the hang-ups are and the issues are and then taking inspiration to really follow is, is how a lot of people have come to know Jesus for the first time. It's how they've discovered who Jesus is and realized that they're being called to follow him. Well, as we wrap up, I just want to say, you know, wherever we're at, and maybe you are here today and you recognize that I, I've been very discouraged. I've been very disgusted. I, I've experienced a lot of distance in my life or I'm struggling with that, whatever it is, I want you to know something that comes out really clear in the letter to the Hebrews. 
That is that Jesus knows where we are. He understands what we have gone through. He really, really understands the struggles that we have. And he is, because of who he is, because of how amazing he is, he is deeply empathetic to us in the midst of our weakness and our frailty, in the midst of our doubts and our struggles. Deeply empathetic. He is our great high priest. He knows exactly where we are. He also knows where where maybe there's family members or friends that have really struggled. He also knows where they are. And he wants us to understand and to hear that he's aware. He knows their hearts. He knows where they are. Um, So I wanted to read for you, just as we close today, the passage that's printed in your bulletin um, from Hebrews chapter 4. And I want you to hear these words as we close today. Because we're thinking a lot about how people drift and how people turn away. And I think for some of us, that's a real live struggle for us. I want you to hear these words. From Hebrews 4. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Hear that? Because of who Jesus is, we don't turn back. We hold firmly. And then here it is. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are. Jesus has experienced the trials, the temptations, and the struggles that you and I have experienced. But here's the difference. Yet, he did not sin. He did not cave. He did not end up in the same place that you and I ended up where we couldn't make it out ourselves. Jesus experienced everything, and yet he did not sin. Because of that, because of how great he is, because of the fact that he won, he was victorious, he didn't give in, because of all that, here's what we do. Last verse, verse 16. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Isn't that beautiful? We might feel very discouraged. We might might know those in our lives who are just that close to giving up. What we're being reminded here is that we have a high priest, Jesus Christ, who fully gets it. And out of that, he invites us to come. And come with confidence. And as we come, we can receive mercy. We can find grace. To what? Help us in our time of need. And so as we close today, I want to ask, and I'm going to ask today, I don't do this very often, but I'm going to ask today, um, I'll I'll let you know in a moment, but I am going to ask you today to to kind of close your eyes, bow your heads for privacy's sake. But here's what I'm going to ask. I believe that some of us, we look at a list like we have up there and we think, that's me. Like I'm really, I I really am struggling. And I'm experiencing disappointment with God and I I do have doubts and, you know, I'm getting all that and I, I feel that that's me. And I really want prayer. I really want to receive mercy and find grace to help me in my time of need. And so I want to pray for you. But I also acknowledge that for lots of us, I think, there are people in our lives, friends, family members, spouses, um, people that we've known that have drifted, that are on our hearts even now as we've talked. And maybe you'd like to just indicate that, you know, by, by raising your hand or lo- looking at me in the eyes, that... Uh, that you'd like prayer for them as well. And so what I'd like you to do is just, yeah, if you don't mind, just closing your eyes and bowing your heads. But if you would like 
to receive prayer for yourself or for someone else, I'm going to ask you just to look at me and give a wave, and then and then that's good, and, and we're going to pray at the end. So, yeah, I see it. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. Anyone else? Yeah. Yep. Yes. Anyone? Anyone else? We have a great high priest, Jesus, who empathizes with us and wants to wants to have us come. Anyone else? Would you stand with me and let's let's close our time in prayer together as we pray for each other and for those we are concerned for. Jesus, we are so enamored with how amazing you are. You are so much better than we could imagine, so much better than we deserve. And we are so thankful. We're so in awe of you. And we just give you glory and praise for being so truly outstanding, truly amazing. And today I want to pray very specifically for those among us today who are feeling uh, the struggle within, feeling doubt, uh, feeling some sort of uh, disappointment, whatever it is, but are, are wrestling with following you and aren't sure and feel that tug to turn away, but want to persevere. I just pray, Lord Jesus Christ, that you would meet them exactly in their place of need today and that you would just pour your grace and your mercy into their hearts. That if there's something that that you need to help get clear in their minds and hearts exactly what's going on so that they can take steps forward, I pray that you would reveal that to them. I pray above all that you just give them a vision of yourself, a vision that simply outshines everything else that they would they would rediscover you or perhaps discover you for the first time i pray that there would not be a discouragement that destroys but rather you would give them courage and insight that you would pour your love into their lives and that you would call them forward into the better you have for us so i pray specifically for those in our community who are struggling and then for those in our community who acknowledge we have friends, we have family, we have spouses, we have neighbors, we have people that were part of this community who have drifted or are far away now. Lord Jesus, we we lift them up to you and ask that you would, wherever they are at today, that you would draw their eyes to you, that they would hear a heart call to return to you. I pray that you would give us wisdom as we interact particularly if they are those who are very close to us, spouses, family, close friends. I pray that you would give us a grace and a wisdom that enables us to just appropriately and gently invite them to see you, that we would be consistent in prayer for them, that we'd be revealing uh, your love for them through our actions and through the grace that we show. And I pray that we would see them turn back to you rediscover the joy of salvation, rediscover how amazing you really are. I pray that we would be a community that doesn't, doesn't ignore struggle, doesn't ignore uh, some of the difficulties that we experience, but rather in the midst of that, we're able to shore one, or other, one another up, encourage one another, fix our attention on you, and run hard in the race that you've given to us. I ask that your blessing would rest upon us today, even as we go. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, God bless you today. 
really thrilled that you're here. And this week I'm heading off for a week for a course in Calgary. But i got to tell you, I've already written the message for next week. And it is so much better than the one I just preached that I was wishing I was able to preach it today, but I didn't. So I hope you can come back because I am super thrilled with what God has for us next week. God bless you. (laughs) Good to see you.